Thanks, Wendy. Um, it's a very difficult parable, so if you have your Bibles, do take it out as we go through it, and I'm sure it'll help you as I try to point to the Scripture. But let's pray that the Spirit will help us to do that as well. Lord, we thank you so much that you are a speaking God. We thank you for the word that was revealed to us fully in Jesus Christ. We thank you for his life. We thank you for his teaching as well. And we pray that as we read this passage and as we, as I preach, Lord, that you will help us to be there listening to him again. And we pray not only will we understand what he says, but Lord, that we'll be obedient um, to his teaching. Lord, thank you for being our Lord. And we submit to your authority this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I told you last week that unbelievably that I wrestled. Um, but in, in wrestling, there's a lot of ways to cheat. Uh, for example, when a wrestler has a cradle like this, I'm sorry for the picture and the so much skin there, but you could just try to get the shoulders, two shoulders down so you can pin the guy. The little trick that I learned is that when you have somebody in a cradle, what you could do is you could basically get his face up your chest. So block his nose and mouth so he can't breathe anymore. And eventually he'll, he'll just, he'll just give in. He'll get pinned. Um, or when somebody shoots a double, this is a double. Um, what you can do is really you can try to pry his head off the, the, the side, of, uh, side of your hips um, by getting your fist and putting it across his face. But what you could do when you do that, you could use this part, the boniest part, and make dig it in into his face so that it's as painful as it could be. I learned these techniques from my high school wrestling coach, Coach Brooks, who used to say... If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. If you're not cheating, you're not trying hard enough. Now, this is generally not a good advice. You shouldn't cheat in sporting competition. But you can understand what he's trying to get at. Coach Brooks was trying to get us to try to win, do our best to win. But what he's doing is well, he's using a bad example, something that is bad, to try to commend something that is good. Bad, cheating, but good, encouraging you to win. If you aren't tempted to cheat, maybe he's saying you aren't trying hard enough. And in some ways, I think Jesus is doing something like that in this parable, in this difficult parable. Jesus tells a story of a man who's dishonest to commend the positive quality that's about him, his shrewdness, his cleverness, his intelligence in going about his business. So we got to get this very clear from the very beginning. Jesus is not commending his dishonesty. What the master actually commends, well, find it in verse 8, right? This is what he says. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly or intelligently or, uh, or, 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 or astutely. He's dishonest, but he was acting intelligently to get the thing that he really wanted in the end, given his circumstance. So here is the situation. The master hears a rumor that this manager is wasting his possessions. So he calls his manager in and says, I'm going to have you give, you, have you give me an account of your management. But because the manager is lazy and proud, he doesn't think that he could dig or, or, or beg. So he uses his craftiness to ensure that he has a job at the end. 
So he's, he starts forgiving people's debts, uh, his master's debts, to a person who owes 3,000 liters of olive oil. That's 3,000 liters of olive oil. He forgives it by half. He reduces it by half. He says, just go away, pay, pay the half. To a person owing 30 tons of wheat, he reduces the debt by 20, uh, 20% and makes it 24 tons in verse 7. Some people say that the manager is not being that dishonest. Um, some scholars say that he's forgiving the interest, interest uh, of, the, of the loan, not the principles. And Israelites weren't allowed to charge interest in the first place. Some people speculate that he's actually forgiving his part of the deal, his commission um, from the people. But I don't think that's how it reads, how, how it went down. I think he forgave his master's debt, which is why he's called a dishonest manager in verse 8. The master is not commending his dishonesty, but his shrewdness. He's almost, the master is almost saying, well, you got me there. He's saying, well, that crafty and clever man. And so Jesus adds in verse 9, right, in the next verse, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. And that's the point, isn't it? The people of the world focus, concentrate, think about what they want, and they use all their craftiness to get what they want in their life. He's saying, in contrast, Christians, people of the light, in many cases, do not do this. When it comes to church work or mission work, kingdom work, evangelism work, children's work, relief work, we're not as crafty, as clever, intelligent as the people of this world. It might might not be a nice thing to hear, but that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that people of this world are shrewd in their dealings with the worldly matters. He's saying, why aren't you shrewd in the, in the, things, of the uh, things of the spiritual world? And the question is, what does it mean for us to live shrewdly as Christians, wisely as Christians? Well, I think the first um, is about living with the end, in the light of the end. You see how this dishonest manager, because he was warned, because the master says, I'm going to put an audit into how you have used the money. He, cha- he, he thinks about his, his life, how he has been, right? And then he changes the way, uh, the, 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 the way of his, his dealings. He changes on the account of the warnings that he received. When he was called by his master and was warned, he reacts to the news. He would be a fool to continue the living, the, uh, living the way that he did before. Right? We're told in verse 1 that he was wasting his possessions. It's the same word that's used in back, uh, back in chapter 15 of Luke um, to describe the prodigal son wasting his possessions. But when he is warned, he sits down. He thinks and he plans. And we overhear his conversation in his mind, don't we? He says, what shall I do now? What should I do? And he takes actions. With the end in mind, he changes. He plans and he acts. 
Um, I listen to the all sorts of podcasts that's probably useless, but I, I, this interesting um, podcast that I was listening to says that big uh, banks like Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or something like that have these computers that react to big financial news in fraction of a second. It might be a financial report that comes out. Whenever, as soon as it comes out, this, the, the, the computer reacts immediately to the news. And I'm sure uh, you also know that there was a Twitter um, thing that says the White House was attacked or something like that. Immediately, all these computers started selling stocks, right? The, the, these clever banks uh, react to the news that's given. And that's what that means. This, the people of this world are shrewd in their dealings. Aren't they? And why is it that Christians are so slow when it comes to our lives, when it comes to investing, when it comes to reacting to the news that God has given us, to the word of judgment that God has given us, the good news of the gospel that God has given us? This manager reacted right away. That's what makes him shrewd. He changed his plan right away. That's what makes him shrewd. How is it that we're so slow in the change um, that we bring to our lives in the light of the warnings that's given to us? And the same warning that has been given to the manager is given to us in this passage. This, uh, look, look at all the warnings in this passage. We're told that, uh, the, the, uh, that this world is not the end, that there is an eternal dwelling in verse 9. We're told that those who have been trustworthy with little, with the worldly riches, will be given true riches in verse 11. We're told that we can't serve two masters. We can't continue to go on serving two masters in verse 13. We're told that God will find a divided heart detestable in verse 13 uh, 15. These are warnings given to us. And what Jesus is saying is, be shrewd, be wise, be intelligent, react to the warnings that I'm giving you today. Think about how you must live in the light of this news. Don't just think about it. Plan and react to the news. Like this man, change. The newly appointed Archbishop of Canterbury... Um, uh, Archbishop Welby was an oil, oil company executive before he became a minister. His monthly salary in Hong Kong dollars was about $204,000 a month when he stepped down from his job. His first job as a curate, as a minister, was about $20,000 a month. It was one-tenth of what he got paid before, 204 to twenty. To many, it looks like foolishness, but he was being shrewd. He thought about the gospel message. He planned. He thought about how he wants to live his life, how, how he wants to invest his life. And he concluded that he wanted to go into full-time ministry. So he planned and he acted. And I say this uh, with a little bit of trepidation because not all of us has to go into ministry to invest our lives well. In fact, I think the church should be sending more people into the marketplace, into politics and medicine and teaching or cleaning or whatever in almost all the places out in this world. But the point is that Archbishop Welby thought about the gospel message that he received. He planned and he changed the way that he lived. 
Are we doing that? Are we being shrewd with our lives? Are we being intelligent with this eternal investment? But as much as this text is about living shrewdly, it's actually more about money, isn't it? And living with the end in mind will affect, it should affect, how we spend our money. So uh, after commending this dishonest manager for his shrewdness, Jesus turns to the subject of money in verse 9. He says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to make friends for yourselves. So when it is gone, you'll be welcome into eternal dwelling. And then he tells us in verses 10 to 12 that we are entrusted with handling the worldly wealth. That we are, if we are trustworthy with these things, that God will give us true riches. And being shrewd as a Christian with money is very different from being shrewd uh, with money for uh, the, the, the people outside of the church. And this is because we are kingdom people and we regard money differently from those who are outside of the church. We find from this passage that worldly wealth is not ultimately permanent or real in some sense. And he tells us that it's not ultimately ours. So take a look at uh, what Jesus says about worldly wealth in verse 11. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will, you, uh, will, uh, who will trust you with true riches? As I was, re- as I was reading this, I thought uh, the, the phrase uh, true riches struck me. You know, we really do think the wealth of this world is real. It's got real power. But what Jesus is saying is that it's not, these are not true riches. True riches are what God is going to give you at the end. That's true riches. What we hold, what we, so many people uh, look, uh, go, go after in this world, that's not true riches. We attribute all sorts of things, power, value, happiness to these wealth, to the worldly wealth. But Jesus says these are not true riches. Rather, they will fade away. And if these are not true riches, can you just imagine what true riches would be, would be like in the new creation? The things that you receive, the things that really sparkle, the things that really have weight and glory in it. Those things that you will receive as you invest the worldly riches um, here on earth. Jesus also then speaks about uh, another truth about wealth, worldly wealth. He says in verse 12 that they're not ours. They're not ours. He says, if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No matter how you got the wealth that you have, they're not yours. Jesus says, they're mine and you're entrusted with it for a time. It's someone else's money. So a minister, a friend of mine, um, likes saying, a question isn't, isn't how much of my money should I give to God? But the question is, how much of God's money should I keep for myself? That's the question. Our wealth has been entrusted to us for a time. And there will come a time when God will reckon how we used, how we invested his money. And if the world wealth is not our own, 
and it's not true riches, then the right thing to do then is to invest, to invest as much as we can in the true riches. You see, we're told in verse 9 that we're not to hoard, keep all this money, but to spend it, use your worldly wealth to make friends. He says, spend it for eternal things. Once again, if we compare this to the shrewdness of the world, some of the smartest people in this world, I, mean, I, I can't remember the reports, but you know, the, the, um, how many people from Harvard and Yale, all those people, go into investment banking and financial world that has increased exponentially in the last five, ten years. But the, some of the smartest people wreck their brain in trying to come up with formulas and smart uh, 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 equations to maximize their investment, don't they? They spend all of their resources to, to try to get, the, uh, to, to get the best return for the money. And isn't that what we should be doing as Christians? Isn't that what we should be doing? Trying to wreck our brain. How can we invest in the true riches? How can we get the most return? That would be shrewd. But I'm not saying that we should then give all of our money away. Invest in the true riches in this world. That wouldn't be shrewd because if you gave all your money away at once, then you wouldn't have more money to give away in the future. And I also think that it's good to figure out how much you need for your retirement, for education, children, um, save up for rainy days. I think those are good things. I think those are being just shrewd, being wise. But after having done all of that, wouldn't you want to invest the rest of it in the things that will not fade away? Wouldn't you want to maximize your investment in the true riches? So count your money. Count your money. Not so that you're saying, how much money can I keep? Count your money. Go back to your bank account. See what you need. And then ask yourself, how much money can I give away? How much money can I invest in the true riches. Being trustworthy servant here means not someone who hoards their money, but who invests his master's money so that he could gain true riches. Last week, um, I read a Christianity Today article about giving. This new report found that the members of Christian Church Reformed, uh, Christian Reformed Church in, in North America, CRC, on average gives 6.1%. The members give 6.1% to the church. It's significantly less than the biblical tithe, 10%, but it is by far the, the largest, the highest in, in America. The National Association of Evangelicals gave on average, uh, members of, uh, of those churches gave on average of 3.7%. The rest of the church represented by National Council of Churches in America, the members gave 2.6%. Now my question is, is that being shrewd? Is that being wise in our investment? I want you to know that I'm not asking for money for the church. I'm saying invest your worldly wealth for the eternal wealth. Give up as, um, oh, 
as this person, uh, Jim Elliot, would say, give up what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. Whether that's for this church or outside of the church, be on the lookout for opportunities to invest, to give. We support 12 mission partners in this church. But surely, there are missionaries that you should support, missionaries who are on your heart, that you should support personally. Look for those people. Look for the opportunities to give. Surely, there are children you could sponsor. Go to World Vision and invest in sponsoring a couple of kids. Surely, we could do, be more generous to our friends and family who are needy around us. Have you investigated Have you sat down? Have you tried to maximize your giving for the eternal investment? Are you being shrewd or are you acting like fools? Plan, plan around your money, plan with your money. But in the end, as Jesus tells us, it's not about the amount. Jesus ends this section with verses 13 and 14. He says, no one can serve two masters. It's about serving one master. He's saying you can't have um, your cake and eat it too. You can't love money and love God at the same time. God says that money is just a means. It's not something that you should worship like God. Things to give away, not something that you should love. He says either you will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money, he says. Billy Graham is credited um, to have said, give me five minutes with the person's checkbook, and I'll tell you where their, their heart is. Give me five minutes with their checkbook, and I'll tell you where their heart is. And Jesus said the same thing, really, on the Sermon on the Mount, right? For wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If someone saw your bank account, bank statement, credit card bill, what would they say about you? Would they say, this person loves Jesus? Would they say, this person is in love with Jesus. This person wants to serve Jesus with all of his heart, all all of her heart, heart and strength and soul and mind. Is our heart divided? Are we all in with Jesus or are we half-hearted creatures? At the end of the day, it really is all about what we think about Jesus, what we believe about Jesus. Do we really believe that Jesus was the Son of God? Do we really believe that Jesus did all those miracles? He calmed the storm. He forgave sins. Do we really believe that he died to take away our sins? Do we really believe that he rose again on the third day? Do we really believe him when he says he will come to judge the living and the dead? And do we believe him when he says this worldly wealth is not real? It's not ultimate It's not true treasure, that he will give us true treasure when he comes back. Treasure that will not fade away, that will last forever and ever, that has substance and weight. If you believe in these things, then let's be all in in this. Let's give all of our heart to him. If this is what we confess, 
Let's show it with the way that we live our lives, including the way that we spend our money. Because you might be able to fool others, as Jesus says to the Pharisee, but you will not be able to fool God. Jesus warned to the Pharisee, saying, God knows your heart. God knows your heart. So as we end, let's not be fools. Let's be shrewd. Let's be shrewd. Let's turn to Christ. If there are things that we must turn away from or embrace because of the lordship of Christ, because of what Jesus has done for us, let's change in the light of these warnings that have come. Let's be shrewd. Let's act on the fact that the worldly wealth is not ultimate, not ours. Not, let's not hold on to it with our dear lives, but let's try to maximize our giving. Let's be generous. And let's be all in in this. Let's love Jesus with all of our heart. Let's give him all of our lives as he has done for us. Let's pray.